Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of 16 Minutes. I'm Sonal, your host, and this is our show where we talk about the news, what's in the headlines, including orienting where we are on the long arc of innovation, especially given that the topic of this episode is Apple's most recent One More Thing event, where they announced the first new lineups of devices last week based on Apple Silicon M1 chips, and those officially came out today. So there's a lot of analysis of performance, benchmarks, and more. But in this episode, Stephen Sanofsky, who has a bit of history to bring to bear here, both as witness and participant, joins us to cover the big picture, which is Apple's moving away from Intel chips and to their own chips that run on the ARM instruction set. So he goes both backwards and forwards from this point in time, beginning first with a quick history of Apple chips spanning decades, and then going into the implications for consumers, developers, and the industry as a whole. As a reminder, none of the following is investment advice. Please see a6nz.com slash disclosures for more important information. And in case you missed it, also check out our related past 16 minutes episodes on NVIDIA plus ARM, as well as other episodes on Apple Watch and more, all available in this feed. But just to sum up at a very high level before we begin what was announced as context, Apple's first Mac silicon chip is called M1 and features eight core CPU for high performance for high efficiency an up-to-8-core GPU, has 16 billion transistors, and more. Anantek's Andre Frumasanu has a couple great write-ups digging into the performance details, which I'll link to in the show notes. Devices-wise, they announced a new M1-powered MacBook Air that's fanless, a new Mac Mini, and a new MacBook Pro, among other things. So, Stephen, let me just start by asking you to share why this is interesting, why it matters, or why anyone should care. Well, you want to care because these are computers that a lot of people use. And it matters a lot to the industry overall because this is an announcement that hits right in the square of the long-standing ecosystem of Microsoft Windows and Intel processors, which years ago, Apple joined when they made Intel-based Macs. And this is really goes way back to Apple's core, no pun intended, <laughs> to be you know, completely integrated from chips all the way on up. And, you know, back in the day, that was a huge thing. Like which chip the company used, yep. who they bet on. Yeah, everybody would debate it and talk about it. Early reviews of Mac versus Microsoft and IBM PCs were always focused on the chips. And Apple went for a long time on, on Motorola chips. And then in 1995, they had taken Motorola chips as far as they could, and the IBM PC had exploded, and Windows 95 was coming out. There was just no hope to keep up with this performance that Intel and the scale that Intel had and the economics that Intel had in chips, because in chips, everything is about scale. Like, the more chips you make, the cheaper you can make them, the cheaper exactly. computers are, the more that you can improve manufacturing. It's just a, a cycle. And that cycle is called Moore's Law, as everyone knows. And for a long time, the saying was always, what more giveth, Microsoft taketh away. And so for what was going on was that tons of new processor capabilities would come out in speed, and then the software would grow to absorb any of that. So you never really had a fast computer that it lasted a long time because then the next software upgrade would just make it slow again. So that was the era when Apple was falling behind. And so that's when they had to bet on a new chip. And they didn't pick Intel. They picked a chip called PowerPC because they could have more control over it. Again, that's that long-term goal to be in control of the chips. And it did okay, but it never changed the dynamics for Apple. And then because they never achieved scale that Intel had, they just got steamrollered when it came to the what then was all about price and performance. 
Yep. Then in 2006 or so, Apple bet on Intel chips. And that was a huge deal because now they could finally ride that price performance curve with Intel. But, you know, the PowerPC, the Motorola 68K, the Intel x86, even the transition to 64 bits, they're all kind of the same architecture. They're really big central processing units that connect up to peripherals and they take a lot of power. In that same period of time is when Apple discovered the value that ARM processors could bring to computing. They had run this with the success of the iPod and then they saw what happened with the iPhone. In a sense, they'd seen a whole different approach to silicon. And so that's why this is so big because it's not just another chip. You had a whole computer built on a different architecture and that architecture is the system on a chip or SOC or SOC. And that takes all of those different parts of what used to be called a motherboard and puts them all basically on one silicon die. And all of a sudden that changes the whole dynamic for how much power the chip consumes. And so the performance has caught up on these chips and it does so by using way less power. And we experience this every day on our phones. And so what's really happened is that whole equation of the software expanding to use all the CPU cycles, that's all gone away. And, and everything has sort of moved up the stack. Now people, they want you know their photos to be processed much faster. And that processing all takes place on a dedicated imaging chip. Or they want machine learning to run in the background, which happens on another dedicated piece of silicon, which is all part of that same system on a chip. That doesn't happen on, on Intel-based PCs. Like there's just, there's, there aren't those capabilities being built into the hardware in the same way across the hardware, the software, and all the places you can buy computing. If you just take a step back, when we talk about Moore's Law, it's a very anodizing word, but OMFG, 16 billion transistors, like holy moly, eight core GPUs in a mobile personal computer, like what, what, what? Yeah, I think about like the, the IBM mainframe that was at the airport when I was at Cornell, like it was so, it needed so much power and so much cooling that they put it at the airport and it had four <laughs> megabytes of memory. I know, it's amazing. So yeah, that was Moore's Law at work. But this is the stack of hardware and software. Like that's the part that they're changing where the boxes are in the architectural diagram of computing. And that's really important. In a sense, the trajectory that we're seeing with the A-series chips on the phone and now the M-series chips on the PC is it, it's just leaving behind what's going on on Android and on Windows. So it's interesting because the images, and I'll include them in the show notes, they have a slide and every time they talk about Apple Silicon where they show the entire system on a chip and all the different capabilities and how they kind of integrate together and it's really, really compelling. One thing I want to take us back to though, Stephen, just going back to the big picture. You also said that this is one of the biggest announcements in computers in a long time, that it represents a step function generational change, which you just summarized. And you said, though, that early on, people will focus on the transition, but the real impact is the direction this takes things. Well, what's interesting is that, that in some ways, this is the end. Like it, it took all of this time to get to Macs built with basically the iPhone chips. And so you could think of it as at the end, like they finished. But if you look at the devices, they're really at the very, very beginning of what's possible in this transition. You know, the, the devices themselves that they announced were fairly down the middle. Like there's nothing striking about like, oh my God, this is what you can do with computers now. 
But on the other hand, like even something simple like the webcam, it's still a 720p webcam. They have access to the same image processing capabilities that they use in the phone and the iPad, which is more silicon and software integration. And that's before you start talking about the fact that these chips are much smaller, they give off less heat, they don't require cooling. Like all of this stuff is, is just getting started. There's so much sort of like, well, we did it that way because that's the way we had to do it. And it totally changes the whole equation. And so what I think we're going to start to see really innovative views of what the form factor could look like. And here we are looking at computers with like literally all-day battery life, not the way that they define all-day battery life in reviews. This is like you can just watch a movie all day. So it's like 18 to 20 hours, which is literally all day, as you say. The battery life is going to be ridiculous. I bet you you'll get, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours of like compile, edit, debug, test coding in on these machines. A question that you've long been obsessed with is the convergence between tablets and PCs. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Sure. Famously, Steve Jobs talked about, you know, PCs as being trucks and that the phone and the iPad were really like modern cars. And then Tim Cook, you know, followed that up by saying, you know, that you could converge a toaster and a refrigerator, but those are probably not going to be pleasing (laughs) to the user. And of course, like, this just kills me because he was really talking about Surface. Oh, I'm sorry, Stephen. (laughs) I know. Well, but the the funny thing is, like, here we are today and, you know, like, boy, the iPad looks a certain way that's not (laughs) far off. They're all toaster trucks. What does it mean, though, that there might no longer be this dividing line between consumption and productivity? What does that mean? Well, that's the that's the category that technologists of the world really grabbed onto when the iPad came out. And they said it's really good for consumption or for, quote, lightweight productivity. And the thing is, is that you can say that stuff all you want, but like all the people that only own phones, you can't say they're not doing any production. Like you can't, like they they really are creating things, whether they're only creating movies or they're creating email or they're creating messages, they are creating. And what's really happened is that there's a set of software packages that people use that define their jobs that only work in a desktop environment. If you're an architect, you know, AutoCAD runs on PCs and those things aren't changing. Look, financial analysts with giant spreadsheets and giant calculated models of Excel using add-ins written in C++, they're on computers for a long time. And by my own guesstimate, there's like 300 million people that have jobs that require those kind of all-day products. And it just so happens one of those jobs is coding. Developers say things like, until an iPad can run Xcode, then it's not a real computer. And like, there's nothing written down that says coding defines what a computer is or isn't. But what's happened with the Mac now is it does the same thing to computing that like SUVs or minivans did to the car industry. Like when the minivan came out, Vans were things that like delivery people had and they were uncomfortable. And then the minivan said, well, we can take all the car things, build it on a car chassis, but puff it up so you could put people in it. And then it became like, well, is it a car or is it not a car? And then all of a sudden people were putting car-like capabilities on truck frames. It became 
like this very confusing world. Is it a car? Is it a truck? And what does it matter? So what you've described is that this blurring of categories is an academic point. It's not just about the features, but the benefits that it actually has for consumers. You already talked about battery life. What are some of the other benefits specifically then for people? So obviously battery life, which we talked about, then there's going to be security. Like one of the biggest problems with both the PC and Macintosh today is you need a piece of software, you download it from the internet. Now, what Apple is able to do is like, look, we have the safe place to get software with the store. And now you have all of this security stuff that you inherit in what's your Mac. Right. And then um, you run all the iPad apps. So for developers who say that the iPad is a consumption device, one of the things they always point to is, oh, you, you know, there are no overlapping windows. You can't have more than one thing on a screen. But now on the Mac, feel free to run like a bunch of iPad apps in Windows. And as a consumer, the key is you're going to get all of these apps. Now, developers can choose to make their iOS or iPadOS apps work on the Macintosh or not. That's a choice that they make when they publish the app to the store. So we'll see what happens. Like, you know, famously, will there be an Instagram app for this device? There hasn't been one for the iPad. Finally, there's Macintosh apps. And Apple did really some brilliant work in the emulation that they call Rosetta, which is something that they worked on years ago in the Intel transition as well. And, and I, I can't really stress how good this work is. It, it's kind of mind blowing because- why, why does it matter? Well, because what this does is it lets you take like your, your Mac software you have today, like your Office for Intel Macintosh, and just run it on these new M1 Macs. And it just runs. Now, there's a big caveat, which is a whole bunch of really important apps that people want to run today or that are written with Electron or the Chromium runtime or Chrome itself haven't run until very, very recently. And that's because the emulation required hardware support or more work on the software side. And it's a lot harder problem to do this just-in-time compiling. But what the call to action really is for this, for developers, is this does introduce this kind of opportunity. So those were the four of the big benefits, iPad apps, Macintosh apps, battery life, and security. And then there'll be more to come in the future when there are whole new devices. Let's actually talk more about what this means for developers. And in our previous episode about NVIDIA and ARM, you did talk about you know, this myth of cross-platform development. So say more practically what this means for people in the industry and other implications. Yeah, so if you're a developer, you have to think about your customers that are on the Apple ecosystem and your customers that are on the Windows ecosystem and your customers that are on the Android ecosystem and some combination of Windows, Android, and, and Apple. And computing has always been a cross-platform challenge. Even at the height of Windows, people always were thinking about, you know, Adobe was always on the Mac, Office was on the Mac, and you have to go where the customers are. But what this device does is it really changes because the, the categories change, it changes the expectations of customers. Like now customers, they might want their iPad experience on their Mac and on their iPad, or they might want the phone app experience to be the same when they're using their keyboard and, and mouse. So this ability to be cross-platform is really going to be stretched in that dimension. And it's also going to be stretched in the dimension of the APIs that you do use in the Apple ecosystem are going to increasingly and seamlessly take advantage of the hardware in the Apple Silicon. And by the way, you mean across devices like watch, right. phone, tablet, right. Mac. Right, so if you're a game developer, all the Apple devices now handle graphics the same way. Or if you are thinking about doing image processing, all the Apple devices have the hardware to do image processing the same way. 
So you're, even if you're a Macintosh ISV and you have a cross-platform effort between Windows and Mac, now you have to ask yourself, well, what graphics APIs are we going to use? And on and on for every subsystem. What's fascinating, the divergence between Apple and everyone else increases with this platform, but the convergence of the devices in Apple's portfolio is real as well. And so now your challenge as a startup, the more that apps start to exist that want to take advantage of the underlying Apple platform, the harder those apps are going to be to work seamlessly on Windows or on Android. And people will debate this. And my view is always the first 90% of cross-platform is great, and it always works, and the last 10% is impossible. If you're happy not doing the last 10%, mm -hmm. everything will be fine. So before we bottom line it, clearly you're like super excited about all this, but I'd love to hear you share the hype in this or where did you see things that where they might not be delivering what they're saying and whatnot? Look, this was not a very hyped announcement, but it is worth considering that in terms of hype or not, a lot of stuff didn't get announced this week. Like a lot of stuff wasn't there. Like, like there's no touch. There's no 5G. The webcam was pretty lame. Where's MagSafe? How do they not have MagSafe? The MacBook Pro kind of has less ports like than you think it should have. And there's no Face ID. So all these things that are in the, the Apple platform aren't in these devices. Let's briefly talk about the pricing. The pricing is exactly what you would expect. I think it's just going to be time before we understand how does Apple play out the line. Yep. And there's the M2-based processor. I'm pretty sure, at least history is, as guidance, that Apple will be selling machines with the M1 in it. And those will be the cheaper ones. Like that's how they've done everything. It's just, you can't do that out of the gate. And that's going to lead to this whole like basic deluxe premium type of tiering. The whole thing about pricing when you compare PCs to Macs is that the PC industry has conditioned everybody on speeds and feeds. And if you're a company that makes computers, you sell computers to individuals, to small business, to big business, and to government. And then for each one of those, you have like a model and each model has good, better, best. And that's how you sell. And your whole goal is to get people to buy more computer than they need. More storage, more gigahertz. This good, better, best thing is what drove everything. Apple radically simplified that whole thing. They don't really have like the channels. They, they, do, they do price education and government a little bit different. They basically sell things by screen size. But down the road, I think that they're going to be pricing it based on their own M1, M2, M whatever kind of stuff. Okay, so bottom line for me, like what's your big takeaway and what's the bottom line? So first, Apple finally achieved a vision from 40 years ago of integrating hardware, software, and more. And they did it from a, a position of strength. They're building on a base of millions of iOS and iPad OS applications and maintaining Macintosh compatibility. Um, it's way more than just integrating their existing technologies into the Macintosh. They're doing this as an innovator now. Up and down the stack of the operating system and the hardware at a scale of billions of devices, millions of apps, is the same strategy. It's definitely unprecedented. And it's deeply personal for me. Like, it's all the stuff that we tried to get done. And the way that happens is when a company manages to pick up all of its strengths and move those forward without being pulled back by the weaknesses that their existing strategy has. And they've seemed to have done that. And it's really rather remarkable. That's a wonderful note to end on, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining this segment of 16 Minutes. Thank you. It was good fun.